1 Samuel 24, page 246, if you have a pew Bible. There is a familiar phrase that is often said that I think is, is helpful. It is that actions speak louder than words. I'm sure it's a phrase you've heard, probably a phrase that you've said, seemed lived out from time to time. And though those are not, as some might suppose, biblical words, I think the idea is actually quite biblical. Now, we shouldn't make any mistakes here. The Bible is very clear that words matter. The Christian life is a life that is dependent upon words, words that we have received from God. And the Bible is very clear that the words that we say matter. They flow up out of our heart and they expose the kind of people that we are. Our words matter. And the words that we believe matter. The substance of our faith, the the convictions that we hold, the facts that we hold to be true about God and what he is like and about man and how we can know him. Your entire eternity will be affected by what you believe about Jesus. Now, you may not feel that right now. You might be more interested in your phone or your relationships, but what you believe about Christ will affect your entire existence. But the Bible makes it clear that we can never separate what we believe and how we live. We cannot separate what we say that we believe and the way that we actually behave. In fact, the Bible goes so far to say that your behavior says more about you than your profession, what you say that you believe. This morning, we are going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 24. On Wednesday nights, I have been preaching through this exciting book for the last, uh, for the better part of a year, I suppose. And we have been going through this incredible book, which in many places reads like a spy novel, I think. It's a book of murders and wars, a book of spies and deception, a book of giants and a book of unlikely heroes, and later on a book of witches. But you'll have to come. You've got to come to learn about that or read it yourself. And we're in the part of the book that I think reads like a, a good long chase scene, right? If you've seen movies where there's a big long, you know, nine-minute chase scene where the car gets busted eight times and they crash through walls and everybody's still driving, you know what I mean? I, it reads like a long chase scene. We have a couple of the main characters, and they are chasing each other all across Judah. Now, in order, since you're coming in on the middle of the story, you've got to be familiar with a couple of the key characters that are in our text this morning. You've probably heard of them before. One is King Saul, and the other is soon-to-be King David. King Saul is a lame duck king, just a lame king. And then David is the next king. He's the king in waiting. Now, let's start with Saul. Saul is the current king in Israel. He came to power in a very strange set of circumstances when the people of God rejected God as their king and demanded instead to have a king like the nations. A king like the nations. Now, the other nations, they didn't know God. So it was sinful for them to desire a king like the nations. Well, God did what he so often does with sinful desires. He judges us by giving us into them. And so he gives 
Israel a king like the nations. King Saul was just like that. He was what the nations valued. He was very tall and very attractive. That's what made a king, right? You got to look like a king to, to be a king, they supposed. Saul was tall and outwardly impressive, but inwardly he was a wreck and destructive and dark. It's a reminder to us that just because you look okay on the outside, that doesn't mean that things are okay on the inside. Or just because you are approved by the world because of what you can contribute to society or how you look, that doesn't mean that things are okay on the inside. And the Bible reminds us that God looks at the heart. Saul was tall and impressive, but on the inside, things were not good. And just like God warned, Saul, even though he began well, he very quickly began to disobey and trust in his own strength. His career began with a few acts of obedience and success, but that success tempted him to think that he could do it by himself, that he didn't need God. So he began to disobey and trust in his own strength. Disobedience is always trusting in your own strength. It's always trusting in your own wisdom. I know better than you, God. Don't tell me how to do this. I know what's best. You don't understand my circumstances like I do. It's the argument that we often hear from our children when they don't want to obey. And yet it is true in our hearts as adults, is it not? Saul began to disobey, and this led to God's rejection and actual abandonment of God or of Saul as king. You see, God is not looking for a king like the nations. He was looking for a king like himself. He was looking for a man after his own heart. Which brings us, as you might know, to King David. David was not impressive by any worldly standards. He was so unimpressive as the youngest of all his brothers that he, in fact, was forgotten at family gatherings. Do you ever feel like that? Any younger siblings in here, you feel like you are totally forgotten? My mom, I grew up in a family of six with four kids, and my mom once forgot our youngest and left her at home when we all went to church. And she reminds us of this regularly, right? I am the forgotten child, right? Well, David was the youngest, the forgotten child. He's the youngest of all his brothers, but, and he's entrusted to the incredible task of caring for animals away from the house. And though he's the youngest and the most humble, there's something different about David. David is courageous and he's successful, not because he's a swell guy, but because he trusts in God. He trusts in God in radical ways. Of course, you know, David became famous after defeating another tall person, right? Goliath, a man of the nations, a man with impressive outward appearances. And Saul, right, Saul should have been the one that fought Goliath, but he didn't. He was afraid. And so David did. David fought him, trusting in God, and began his long, successful military career with what has to be considered the most famous battle in human history. And God made it clear that David would be the next king of Israel. Saul had abandoned God, so he was on his way out. Friends, disobedience will always lead to your ruin. And David was on the way in because he had been selected by God and trusted God. David had a soft, tender heart. But 
like God so often, so often does, as all saints can attest to, God was making David wait. Has God ever made you wait? We are awaiting people, are we not? And David was waiting. Not in some cushy waiting room, not when things are comfortable. He wasn't in, you know, still in the palace living the good life. David was on the run. And these are circumstances that are difficult for us to even imagine. David was being chased for months and months and months by the most powerful man in the nation and his army. And this nation, this king, happened to be a murderous father-in-law. And he was chasing David to kill him. And so we see Samuel, the book of Samuel, chronicling Saul's descent into destruction. The more Saul disobeys, the crazier he gets, the darker his heart becomes, and the more despairing he becomes. The more Saul hardens his heart, the more miserable he becomes. Sin leads to misery. Mark my words, maybe not immediately, but sin will always lead to misery. Saul shows us what happens to the heart that is hardened by sin. After one sinful choice after another, it becomes dark and miserable, full of anxiety and restlessness and paranoia. So Samuel displays Saul, a king who's always have, he always has his spear in his hand because he's afraid, he's paranoid. He knows that he's been rejected by God, and he knows that David is the next king. And so for chapter after chapter, we read of King Saul chasing David all over Judah, obsessed with trying to kill him. This reminds me of the old Looney Tunes cartoons that you would see as a kid on Saturday mornings. Do you remember how they would do the chase scene sometimes? They'd zoom out and show a map of a territory and then show like the two characters zigzagging all over the map, crossing swamps and mountains and rivers and crossing each other and, you know, having pianos fall on them and, and surviving. And we, we would see Wiley E. Coyote chasing the roadrunner all over the place. And that's how this part of the story reads. It's a long chase scene. But Saul is no Wiley Coyote. He is a murderous man. In Samuel chapter 22, we just read a few weeks ago about how Saul, the one entrusted to care and protect God's people, murdered an entire village of priests. Not only did he murder the entire village of priests, but he murdered all the men, all the women, and all of the children, including the babies. This is a man with a dark, dark heart, all because they helped David. They gave him some bread, so he murdered all the children. Sin leads to destruction. Saul is at it again. Once again, we see David, if you've been following along with this on Wednesday nights, which I would invite you to. David is again on the run with his men, with his mighty men. And he is again hiding in a cave in the wilderness of Engedi. And Saul is once again on his tail, this time chasing him with 3,000 army rangers. Now, I suppose they weren't technically army rangers, but they were the equivalent, the Israel equivalent of the army rangers. And things get really interesting because Saul has to go to the potty. 
Yep, several of you looked up there for a second. I see what happened. Saul had to go to the bathroom. Even kings, it seems, have to go potty. And David finds himself with what seems like a God-given opportunity to take out his enemy once and for all. But as we come to this text, even before we have read it, we find ourselves asking, what is this man, this man after God's own heart, what is he going to do? Is he going to take him out? What's going to happen? And what can we learn from his actions? Well, we have to read the text to determine that. But before we do, let me give you the main idea from this passage this morning. The main idea is this. This morning, we are going to see how those who trust the Lord choose to obey him even in the midst of their trials. More specifically, we'll see how even in the worst, most strained of relationships, we are called not to take matters into our own hands, but to trust God to show mercy to our enemies, just like Jesus has shown mercy to us. Let's read this text in its entirety. 1 Samuel 24, I will not go through the whole passage. I'll finish this on Wednesday night. But let's read it in its entirety. God's inspired word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And when he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, left the cave, and went on his way. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called out after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave to you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you, me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. 
and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you, will, how you have dealt, with me, dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This ends the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, useful word. Let's go to him again in prayer. Father, as we come before your word, we come with expectation. As we read it, it feels very far away from us. Many of us might be confused of how this could help us or what we can learn. And yet we are desperate and hungry. We need help. We need spiritual nourishment for our lives and for our problems. We need help to know how to worship you and how to be merciful to those who mistreat us. Father, I pray that your word this morning would shine forth by the power of your spirit. I pray, Father, that no man would stand in the way of your purposes, namely me. So, Father, let my words fall to the ground. Let them blow away and be forgotten. No man needs to hear from me, but we need to hear from you. So let your words remain and let them bear fruit in our hearts as they abide. Let this produce the fruit of mercy in our lives. Let it produce humility in our relationships. And let it produce glory for Christ, our King. We ask this in your name. Amen. There are a number of important and significant lessons that we could learn from this chapter here in 1 Samuel this morning. But we must focus our attention only on four. So let me draw your attention to four things that we can learn from mostly the beginning of 1 Samuel 24. The first is this. God uses trials and tests to prepare his people. God will use trials and tests to prepare you. Often he will use relational trials. He will put difficult people in your life to see if you trust him. As we've seen, God had big plans for David. At the beginning of David's spiritual career, everything was going great. Sure, David had some problems, right? There's that time a bear tried to kill him, and then the time the lion tried to kill him, and then the time the giant tried to kill him. But he, he had some problems. But generally, God always seemed to send solutions, and quickly. He'd pray, God would answer, things were good. When attacked by bears and lions, God gave him immediate victory. When attacked by a satanic serpent-like giant, God gave him victory. Now he was a celebrity. He was the king in waiting. He married the king's daughter. He didn't even have to pay taxes. Pretty good situation, wouldn't you think? 
And now here he is, and look, his life is in a mess. You do not know what tomorrow brings, brothers and sisters. You do not know what tomorrow brings. None of our lives are stable. What is your life? And David's life is a mess. I've lost track how many times Saul has tried to kill David. But all of that seems to change because Saul has to go number two. I think that's what the, I think that's what the text means there. David and his men are hiding in another cave for the night. And they're trying to elude Saul and his commandos. And here comes King Saul, and he has to go to the bathroom. So, David and his men are excited about this. One commentator I read, I can't help but share it. He said that his men were singing, This is the day the Lord has made. Right? They were excited, saying, Hey, look what's happened. God has finally given your enemy into your hand. Look down at verse 4. Here's the day of which the Lord had said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, first of all, we should note, God never said that to David. He didn't say that. But it still looks like that if there's anyone who's in a position to kill Saul, it would be David, would it not? He would be killing him in self-defense. He's chasing him around trying to kill him. He would be killing, not a good guy, but a mass murderer. This is a man who just butchered 70 priests, an entire village back at Nob. He would also be taking the kingdom that the Lord had already given him. Would he not be just rightfully taking his throne? All his friends were saying, do it, do it. Yet David knew that even though his friends said do it, even though his counsel and circumstances said proceed, that he must consider the will of the Lord. I mean, but think about it. Like, my goodness, what are the chances? Out of all the caves in Engedi, this is a, ca a cavernous region, right? It seems like God was delivering Saul right into his hands. In our day, we would probably say it like this. The Lord has opened a door in my life, right? That's how we would talk about it these days. And I think that this brings us to an important point early on. Just because you think that you see an open door in your life, it does not mean that that is God's will for you. Has anyone ever told you that? Just because you have an opportunity does not mean that God is telling you to do that opportunity. I hear that so often. Church folks trying to process decision-making, and we just say, oh, I have this opportunity, therefore I should take it. Well, that's clearly not the case. I mean, there's a difference between an open door and a trial and a temptation, is there not? Did Jesus have open doors in the wilderness? An open door to perhaps skip the cross? We have to be very careful and discerning, brothers and sisters. We need wise friends. We need to know the scriptures. We need, we need to submit our lives to other people who have been entrusted to care for us. Well, David understood that it was not this simple. Later on in the passage, David makes it clear that if he were to kill King Saul, he would actually be sinning by taking matters into his own hands. And for the time being, Saul is God's anointed. David is not God, and he submitted to that. I believe that as we study the life of David, that this here in chapter 24, this event, was a crucial turning point in David's life. David was going to be king, yes, 
God had promised that. But the question is, what kind of king would he be? Would he be a king like Saul, who trusted in his own wisdom and trusted in his own power, the power of his sword, the power of his abilities or his looks? Or was he going to trust in God? Was he going to take the kingdom with blood on his hands? Or was he going to allow God to give it to him in his own time, even though his timetable was incredibly slow? Unlike Saul, and unlike us so often, David chose to allow God's word to govern his mind, not just his passions, and not just his circumstances. David submitted himself, his mind, and his actions to God's word. But it hadn't always been like this. David had not always had this kind of faith. We often think of a few shortcomings in David's life, but David did not magically come out of the womb trusting in God. He had to learn through difficulties. If you read back, especially in chapters 19 all the way up through 22, we see David as a very weak man, a man with fledgling faith, a man whose spiritual life was often like ours, up and down. Sometimes he trusted, sometimes he doubted. We see this also, and very comfortingly, in the Psalms. I remember when I was a teenager trying to learn how to read the Bible, and I remember finding the Psalms so helpful, some of them. And they would, they would resonate with me, depending on how things were going in my life. And I remember one time, I don't remember where I was reading, but I had the Bible open, and I saw several Psalms of David. And on one page, David was talking about the nearness of God and how close he was, and how he could trust him. And then on the very next page, David is saying, where are you? Is that not how our lives seem to go? Is that not how your faith often feels? Do you often ask, God, where are you? What are you doing in my life? I remember I've seen you work before, but what are you doing now? Well, David seemed to have the same experience. And he chose, even when he didn't feel God, to trust him. He had become convinced through his circumstances and through his sinning and through his trials that when you find yourself in a mess, it's better to obey God and leave the mess to him. It's better to obey and leave God to clean up the rest. Let him sort it out. You see, God was testing David. He was asking, will you trust me? You see, our trials have a very specific way of making what is ordinary obedience on Monday become radical obedience on Tuesday. It, it can be very easy to love your children on Monday and then incredibly difficult to love them on Tuesday. It can be easy to walk by faith on Monday and then hard when you are discouraged on Tuesday. It can be easy to live in purity on Thursday when there's no sexual temptation and hard on Friday night when no one is watching. Our trials have a way of making radical obedience out of ordinary situations. It's easy to trust God when everything is good, right? Anybody, anybody can do that. It's easy to trust God when you're the hero who just killed the giant. But what about when you're scared? What about when you are a fugitive? What about when you are suffering and you've done nothing wrong? 
Will you trust and obey God then? Trials make, make ordinary obedience and turn it into radical obedience if we obey. And David chose to radically obey God. And that radical trust produced all sorts of fruit in his life. I don't have time to explore this now, but one of the things you notice is that when David chose to trust God, it actually gave him self-control. He was able to resist shoving a sword through his enemy. And he was able to call his men to the same resistance. Brothers and sisters, do we not need that precious fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Do you not need more self-control? It's the call to trust in God, to trust Him for your circumstances. That will produce, by God's Spirit, self-control. And that's what David did. He trusted would David have become king if he had killed Saul that day? I believe he would have. And I believe God still would have fulfilled his purposes. And he still would have survived and made Israel, the, brought his plans to fruition. But David would not have been the same man. And David would not have had the same relationship with God. And he would not have known the same power. Brothers and sisters... There are trials in your life, trials that you've already experienced, trials that you're experiencing now, and trials that will come. And the way that you respond directly impacts the power of your spiritual life. It directly impacts your usefulness in your ministry. Men, the way you respond to your difficulties now will either increase or decrease how much of a blessing you are to your family. Do you know that? God uses trials to prepare us. Even Jesus was tempted. Even Jesus had to be made complete in suffering. David would not have known the same power. Which brings us to a second point from our text this morning. Our testing reveals how much we trust God. Our testing, the way we respond reveals how much or how little we trust God. It, 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 it gives us a grade on how well we trust Him. It's easy to see this in the story, right? It's easy to say that you trust God, but it's another thing altogether when you actually restrain your passions. When you actually obey Him when things are hard. That's why God gives us trials, to test us. This, I mean, this wasn't an accident. God could have spoken Saul out of existence. And he did in chapter 31 when he killed him. But that was to come. I believe that God is sovereign over every single part of our lives. He's even sovereign over Saul's bathroom breaks. What is out of his control? Every day, God is working in your life, brothers and sisters, to set the stage and to put you in circumstances where you have to trust him so that he will reveal all sorts of things about his character and his power to you. He puts us in real life situations to see what is actually in your heart. So often we talk like someone else made me do this, right? You made me angry. But that, that's not how the Bible talks. Our circumstances reveal who we actually are. 
God does this not because he doesn't know. He's not like on a fact-finding mission. He knows our hearts. He's testing us to reveal the contents of our hearts to who? To us. To ourselves. That's because trials reveal the real you. Trials reveal the real you. You are who you are when no one is watching. And you are who you are when someone sins against you. And you are who you are when you are tempted. The way we respond reveals our heart. David seemed to do pretty good on this test. The text says that David snuck down and cut off a piece of Saul's robe. It's a lot better than killing him, right? But David had a very sensitive conscience. Look down at verse 5. After David went down and cut off a piece of Saul's robe, David said, it says that David was convicted about it. David's heart struck him. Okay, this is not a text on clothing vandalism. This is not a passage saying, teenagers, do not rip your blue jeans, all right? I don't care if you rip your blue jeans. That's not what he's talking about. He's going much, much further. In order to understand this, we have to understand that there is a symbolic nature to this gesture. Several times in the book of Samuel, we've seen that the robe represents authority. The robe, a royal robe, represents a kingdom and the power of the king. Saul's robe was a symbol of his authority as king. Back in chapter 15, we see one of these incidents where Samuel, the prophet, is delivering the bad news to Saul. Hey, God has rejected you, and since he's rejected you, he's going to rip away the kingdom from you. And Saul, in response, reaches up and rips Samuel's robe. And then Samuel says, just like you've torn this robe, God's going to tear the kingdom away from you. So when David cut his robe, it was a symbolic gesture of political overthrow. It was like a coup. He was symbolically transferring power from Saul to himself. But the problem was, it wasn't time yet. You see, David was learning to walk with God. He was trying to obey, and sometimes he would succeed, and then sometimes he would struggle. You see, those who walk with God and those who practice obedience learn and develop a tender, sensitive conscience. You become convicted about the things that wouldn't have bothered you years ago. There are things in my life that were not sin struggles in my life that weren't even on my radar when I was a teenager or even in my 20s. We become convicted of new struggles with sin. That's actually one of the surest ways to know if you're growing. Are you being convicted of new sin? And then do you repent of that new sin? That's what the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God in you, that's what He does. He shows sin to us. So that's how you can know if the Spirit of God indeed dwells in you. You see, David was sensitive, and he recognized what was going on in his heart. And even though he had pleased God by showing Saul mercy, he was still forcing God's hand. I love the Bible. It's so real and true, because so often that's how our behavior is. It's mixed. Part of what we're doing is obedient, and part of it is sinful. Our motives are mixed. Sometimes we want to please God, and sometimes we want to please ourselves at the same time. Sometimes we want 
Not to be proud and to be proud at the same time. We have fickle hearts. And David did too. On the one hand, he showed mercy, which demonstrated his incredible trust in God. And on the other hand, he showed his impatience. He was trying to take matters into his own hands by taking the kingdom. We see this, that David, the author of dozens and dozens of the Psalms, we see him constantly examining his heart, drawing attention to sin, drawing attention to fruit, and bringing it all before the Lord. He knew how to examine his heart. And he had become convicted that his action was a rebellion against sovereign's will, God's sovereign will. This is the mark of a man of God. This is the mark of a man after God's own heart. Not that he never sins. If you know David, David is a royal sinner. But this is what makes him a man of God. Not that he doesn't sin, but that when he sins, his heart is sensitive and he repents. Brothers and sisters, let us strive to be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl after God's own heart. That when God shows us sin, we repent. This test had revealed several things to David. It revealed how God had grown him, right? He was showing mercy to his enemy. It's incredible. But it also revealed how much more he needed to grow. Ways that he wasn't trusting God. This test, which by the way was significant, he was being chased by a murderous madman. Anyone having some difficult tests in your life right now? Any murderous father-in-laws chasing you with an army of 3,000 rangers? Right? David had some significant problems. But the test was for his spiritual good. There's definitely a way for his life to be happier. God could have done that. God was not primarily concerned about his temporal happiness, but about his spiritual maturity. This test revealed David's nature. And David came to realize in 1 Samuel 24 that he needed God more than he thought he did in chapter 23. That's what our tests do. Which brings us to a third point. We will always be tempted to try to skip our suffering. We're always going to be tempted to try to skip our suffering. This was one of the specific temptations that Satan tempted Jesus with. And if Jesus was tempted, we too will be tempted. Why would David, who clearly trusted in God enough not to kill Saul, why would he sin? Why would he be tempted to sin by forcing God's hand? Why would he be tempted to sin to, through this symbolic transfer of power? Well, I think the answer is simple. It tells us about human nature, that, that we are always tempted to take the easiest route out. We're always tempted to try and skip the suffering. When we face a problem, when we face unpleasant circumstances, it's our nature to fix it, to try to solve it. I talk with folks all the time. They say, hey, look, I can't help this. I'm a fixer. And I say, yeah, I struggle with that too. I don't want to need God, but we need God. And that's why we're not very good at fixing stuff if God is merciful to us. How can I solve this problem? How can I escape this circumstance? Usually it comes down to a couple of options for us. We might stay and fight, or we might flee. Fight or flight, right? We might run. We might get that divorce. 
Or we might quit that hard job. Or we might leave the church. Or we might try to numb our problems and not think about it, right? Lots of Netflix, lots of ice cream, lots of angry birds or words with friends or whatever. Or perhaps we stay and fight. We scream, we yell, we threaten. Or we criticize and we gossip, trying to get back, trying to make ourselves look better. Or perhaps we get tripped up on the other side of anger, the quiet, brooding side. We stew. We give the silent treatment, the cold shoulder, or that passive-aggressive sarcasm. But all of these are sinful coping mechanisms as we try to escape the trials that God has tailor-made for us. This This is only true if you're a believer. If you're not a believer in Christ, your trials are the consequence of your sin. And there's no hope unless you turn to Christ. If you're in Christ, God's promised that he's using your trials and your problems to make you like Jesus. You are saved for that to be conformed to his image. We don't like our trials, so we don't want to cry out for help, but that's why God has given them to us, that we would cry out for help and realize that we need a Savior. You see, none of these options, these fight-or-flight options, honor God, and none of them are very effective, right? Have you ever noticed that? John Mayer, in one of his songs back from I don't know, 2009 or something, he sarcastically notes, has anyone ever really changed their mind from something someone yelled real loud one time? All right? Your, your fighting doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Has your spouse ever repented because you said that he was the greatest mistake you've ever made? Does that work? No, of course not. Now, we're going to look more at David's response and a model of reconciliation later on Wednesday night this week, Lord willing. But here's what you've got to notice. God has placed you in difficult situations to change you, to make you more useful to him. Because he needs people who are dependent upon him. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, those difficult situations come in the form of people, of difficult relationships. Hopefully no one in your life is throwing a spear at you, But there are other difficulties, are there not? And they can be just as hard. We all have people that God has placed in our lives that are hard to live with, hard to show mercy to. People that seem like they're making it harder for you to obey God. Do you have any of those people in your life? It would be so much easier to obey God if there were no other people that got in my way. (laughs) Right? It'd be so much easier to love people if there were no other people to love. Right? Have you experienced that? This is why monasticism is appealing to some. God could have put you in that situation. People seem to make it harder to obey God, and God could take him out, and that's exactly what he does to Saul, but later. You see, if Saul had died back in 1 Samuel 17, David would have been radically different. David would have missed out on years of sanctification. He would have missed out on finishing school. He wouldn't have written about 14 of the Psalms that we have. And who knows, if he hadn't learned of the danger of sin, if he hadn't learned a lifestyle of repentance, perhaps David never would have repented of Bathsheba. 
You see, chapter 24 shows that after years and years on the run, David is still a sinner struggling to trust God. But he's come to know God in a new way. He's come to know him in the caves of Engedi and Adullam. You see, you can never come to say with David as he does in Psalm 57, a psalm that he wrote during this period of his life. You're never going to be able to say with him, even though my soul is in the midst of lions and I lie down in the mid fiery beasts, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast and I will sing and make melody. You will not learn how to sing and trust God in the midst of fiery beasts until you are tried. David had learned of God's ability to save because he had learned that he needed saving. David had learned of God's ability and willingness to forgive because he needed forgiving. And David had learned of God's steadfast love because all of the people who loved him left him. His wife abandoned him for another man. His best friend, Jonathan, left him, separated because of his father's sin. Even the nation turned against David. It reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Brothers and sisters, no matter what walk you are in life, no matter where you are in your maturity in the Lord, your trials have a purpose to get you ready for glory. So don't try to take matters into your own hands. Don't try to take the easy way out. Don't try to skip the suffering. You don't know what you'll miss. Which brings me to a fourth and final point. Jesus did not skip his suffering. What's amazing to me about this particular story is not simply that David trusted God to deliver him. That's amazing. But also that he showed mercy to Saul. He showed his enemy mercy. Now, as I said, we'll look at this more on Wednesday night. But I'd like for you to notice now in verses 17 through 19 how Saul responds to David's mercy. He's amazed. Look at verse 19. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Saul was baffled by mercy. Mercy is something the world does not understand. That's only gospel talk. Only gospel people can really understand this. He knew David was his enemy, yet he let him live. So he asks, what sort of man loves his enemies like that? What sort of man shows that kind of mercy to people who sin against him? And what sort of king has so much mercy and so much confidence in God that he is willing to continually suffer? Well, David was that kind of man. And David would in many ways be that kind of king. But all throughout the scriptures, we see that though David was a good king, he was not the king. He was a type of king that was getting us ready for the one true king, the son of David. Yes, David was a man after God's own heart, but Jesus, the son of David, 
had God's heart. He is, he was God. He is the true and the better David, our king. Just like David, Jesus was a nobody from nowhere. But he was full of the spirit and full of mercy. But unlike David, Jesus never disobeyed. He never took matters into his own hands. He always left room for God's wrath. Unlike David, Jesus did not skip. He did not try to skip the suffering. Which brings me to my favorite summary of the gospel in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, by his wounds, you have been healed. For we are all straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. You see, friends, You and I must come to a place where we realize that not only are we needy for our problems, but we need a Savior. Hell, God's wrath, is the biggest problem in your life. You may not feel like it, it's there. It's the biggest problem in your life. The Bible says we were all straying like sheep. That may not sound like a big deal. You may not care about lost sheep, but God does. Because straying like lost sheep is treason. Because the sheep are running away from the shepherd, and the shepherd owns them. God is our maker, and we owe him our worship. Our sin says that we are opposed to God's rule, and we're opposed to his kingdom. It means we're God's enemies. And all of God's enemies deserve to die. And all of God's enemies will die unless God himself comes and dies for them. Jesus Christ is the true and the better David, showing mercy to his enemies. Jesus didn't take the easy way out, but he came to earth loving all the way. Jesus showed mercy to the people who killed him while they were killing him, loving them, healing them, praying for them, dying for them, rising for them, interceding for them. And this mercy should baffle us. And leave us asking, just like Saul, who in the world treats his enemies like that? And what does that mean for how I treat my neighbor? Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we recognize that in so many ways we are not like you. As we've heard this example of mercy, as we see it displayed to us, Father, we ask that you would help us to be like David, that we would be a people who trust you, who don't take matters into our own hands, but entrust our souls and our relationships and our difficulties to you. So Father, as we consider now how to respond to your word, would you reveal to us where we need to trust you and who our Savior is? We ask this in your name. Amen.